We hope this podcast has done more than keep you company on the treadmill or along your commute. We hope it's a small reminder of the beauty of God and the people around you. At Church on Morgan, we serve a community with a wide variety of experiences and beliefs. We respect where you are, and throughout the year, we rarely mention giving on here, not because it isn't important, but because we know this resource is often shared with folks who are wondering if they can trust the church again. If you are one of our generous listeners, thank you for your support. Would you consider making a year-end gift to continue to support this ministry? When you give, you help to create a safe space for someone who might be giving church one last chance, and we are so grateful. To make a contribution, visit us at churchonmorgan.org and select Give. And now, we invite you to take a moment of quiet before we dive in. Well, my name's Sam. I'm uh, the newest member of the team here at Church on Morgan. And as the new girl, I was prepared to teach the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I was not prepared to teach the Sunday after the Turkey Bowl. Um, When I tell you it took me like 10 minutes to put on these boots this morning, (laughs) we are feeling it. But here we are, and I'm so, so happy to be with you. As Justin said, Advent is a season of preparation and a season when we actually, at the beginning of the year, look ahead to our future. So to get our wheels spinning, to start looking in that direction, I'd like to invite us to take a moment to turn to someone sitting next to you who you do not know and share something you think will be true 10 years from now. Something about the way that we get around, uh, some technology you think might exist, you think will be in space. Share, uh, turn to someone near you who you do not know and take a minute to share something you think will be true 10 years from now. Go for it. Cool. Well, thank you for uh, taking a moment to go there. We are going to linger on uh, some visions for our future today. That's funnily how the Christian year begins. And maybe like some of you, I didn't grow up in a church that followed the Christian calendar very closely. But I'm curious about how such a practice could form us because the other calendars have never done very much for the rhythm of my soul The academic year, the fiscal year, the holidays, the seasons, they march relentlessly on with or without our interior cooperation. But in contrast, as one author writes, the Christian calendar reminds us that we dwell, get this, at the intersection of time and eternity. So as one of the first readings on the first Sunday of the new year, the lectionary gives us this passage in Isaiah. And if you were here when Jonathan Merritt preached a few weeks ago, he invited us into a moment of centering prayer before we heard the scripture. And I found that so helpful. I'd like to bring that back. So we're just going to spend a moment in quiet. If you just bring your feet flat on the ground, come not just from your brain, but into your body as we prepare to receive uh, these words. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Scholars have dubbed this passage the floating oracle of peace. It appears verbatim also in Micah chapter 4, which is a remarkable and rare occurrence, suggesting something to us of the prescience and high regard for this vision of peace. Why does the lectionary put these future-oriented passages before us during the season of Advent? Why do we anticipate the first coming of Christ with visions of the second And what does the incarnation have to do with the goal of our world's someday evolution? Well, where we think a story is headed informs how we experience its unfolding. We celebrate Jesus' birth because it becomes more significant in light of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. The ending we expect shapes how it feels to be inside the story. I think this is why like bad weather or fighting or getting sick on vacation is so much more disappointing than when those things happen in real life because we've like already decided what the ending was supposed to be, right? It will be restful. It will be a blast. We will make great memories. We've already written the caption in our head. And so we're yelling at our family members, we're here to have fun, right? Which is never how fun starts. Uh, But every second a vacation falls short, it affects us more intensely because it's unfolding differently than the ending we decided on. The ending we expect shapes how it feels to be inside the story. So I wonder what kind of story you imagine you're living in. I wonder what kind of story you think our world is unfolding in and what that means about the ending. Is it a tragedy? A dark comedy? An absurdist farce? During Advent, we jump ahead to the ending and remember that we're headed somewhere good. Preposterous as that may seem on the page that we're on, we rehearse the ending. Nations will stream together to learn the ways of the God of love. God will settle their disputes. Weapons will be obsolete. That oracle of peace floats to us each year when the trees have lost their color. And we say these words that aren't true yet. We do it all season long. We exchange Christmas cards and sing songs proclaiming peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And we try not to look at the news. We make our unfulfilled purpose our anthem. We proclaim our God is just. We proclaim our God is peace. We may quietly wonder if our God is preposterous. You know, it's worth noting that Isaiah probably didn't set out to write the end of our story. This is what Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the text begins. Of course, Isaiah is a piece of sacred text that we share with our Jewish siblings. As Christians, we don't read Isaiah through, we we understand Isaiah through our histories and our theologies, so we don't read it the same as our neighbors. The New Testament quotes Isaiah more than any other part of the Old Testament. And in Christian literature, art, music, and liturgy, no other book in the Hebrew scriptures except the Psalms has generated as much commentary and theological interpretation in the Christian tradition as Isaiah. The words of Isaiah just do something to our imagination. But Isaiah wrote in the 8th century BC, we associate prophecy with future telling, But as writer Thomas Mayfield says, the prophetic Hebrew scriptures were not concerned primarily with predicting a distant future. 
This genre of literature addresses the real theopolitical issues of the day. To read the Hebrew prophets as distant future tellers is to stretch historical credibility. The prophets of ancient Israel did not see their sole activity as foretelling, so much as forthtelling, speaking to the religious and political issues of their day with courage and strength. And yet, every generation longs for a promise that the powers and principalities of our age do not control the future. Whether Isaiah intended this to become our dream or not, we still hope this is who God is. Mercifully just, radically peaceful, slightly preposterous. So the oracle floats on. It floats to Jesus, a young boy reading the Hebrew scriptures. Nations will stream together to learn the ways of the God of love. God will settle their disputes. Weapons will be one day obsolete. And the life of Jesus teaches us more about what God is like. Mercifully just, radically peaceful, and as it turns out, way more preposterous than we might have imagined. Nations alongside nations sounds pie in the sky until you look at the people that Jesus seats next to each other at his tables. In a world without weapons comes more clearly into view through his provocative, public, and daring life of nonviolence. Jesus becomes a pacifist revolutionary who will be executed by the empire only to defeat the powers of death. Jesus shows us God is deadly serious about a preposterous level of peace. But then we may wonder why it's taking so long. Every passing year we dream of a world without weapons with our feet firmly planted in a world that seems to be run by them. Isaiah could not have imagined our nuclear armories, our drones, our AR-15s. Isaiah tells us to turn our swords into plowshares, but his contemporary, Joel, also in our sacred text, once said the opposite, to turn our plowshares into swords. And so we teach our children to hide under their desks because who can reform the world if they can't survive the world? Isaiah says, someday there will be a new curriculum. This oracle of peace has floated to peoples in places across the globe for millennia, people whose lives have been far more impacted by war than my own, and still, after a few decades on this painful planet, I'm impatient. Advent is a season of waiting, and that means maybe, sometimes, it's also a season of impatience. For we stand in the middle of all that is not yet, and all that is already. And lots of us are better at seeing what's not yet, and that matters, that's why we have prophets. But if we truly do stand at the intersection of time and eternity, then we also get to see and be encouraged by what's already. Sure, Isaiah couldn't have imagined our weapons, but neither could he have imagined that someday his words would inspire a monument entitled, Let Us Beat Swords Into Plowshares, to be erected outside the UN building in New York City. And when he wrote about nations streaming together like a river to learn the ways of love, he could not have imagined an organization like the United Nations, 193 countries committed to maintaining international peace. Isaiah wrote about repurposing weapons as tools, and he could never have imagined recycling. What if the seed of the future has been with us since the beginning? We see this in the smallest parts of our ecosystem, where God's character is revealed in nature. Writer and activist Adrienne Marie Brown, just down the road from us in Durham, she writes, a group of caterpillars or nymphs might not see flight in their future, but it's inevitable. It's destiny. 
If God is ahead of us and God is with us, as Jesus reveals, then somehow the future is with us, in us. The incarnational goal of evolution planted in each and every hearer of this floating eighth century oracle whom the vision of swords turned into plowshares has inspired throughout history. It echoes an ancient longing inside of every heart. Maybe God is just, peaceful, and preposterous, and maybe so are we deep down. We've just gotten too dang reasonable, myself included. So I went looking this week, like who believes this? Who's working towards Isaiah's vision of peace, and what are they imagining? And I was inspired by a few strategies which all have something in common. They're absurd. They're strange. They're not the first idea you would think of. They'd be easily dismissed. The work of futurist Jane McGonigal pointed me to a study called Transforming Our Nuclear Future with Ridiculous Ideas. And it asserts that the global effort for nuclear disarmament is going to require some radical reimagining after 70 years of failed attempts. And so this article takes aim at two core assumptions we have when it comes to this project. One, that it will be slow and take decades to achieve. And second, that the power to decide when and whether we rid the world of nuclear bombs lies only in the hands of the nine nation states that currently possess them. So they roll out a few different scenarios that don't depend on those assumptions. And in one, a few leading technology companies have figured out how to engineer solutions to the most dangerous global challenges. And so their life-saving technology becomes the ultimate form of geopolitical leverage. And these private companies make the nation states a deal they can't afford to refuse. We will offer you our humanity-saving technology if you will commit to disarming your nuclear arsenal. Now, that idea sounded a whole lot more ridiculous in 2015 when it was conceived of, before we'd been through a deadly global pandemic with a life-saving vaccine. What will it take to end the madness of nuclear proliferation if not something completely unexpected? And what if the future circumstances that would make an impossible idea possible are closer than we think? My hometown, Chicago, is experimenting with a creative strategy to reduce gun violence. And it's based on ample research that connects blight remediation with decreased levels of violence. So in one experiment, researchers found that gun assaults, gun assaults dropped 30% in high-poverty areas surrounding vacant lots a year and a half after those lots were mowed, graded, or otherwise beautified. And the study concluded that were the same treatments applied to vacant lots citywide, that city could expect to record 350 fewer shootings next year. And notably, in this and other similar studies, none of the violence was simply displaced to other neighborhoods. Obviously, when it comes to the many layers that contribute to urban gun violence, there will be no easy button solution and a holistic strategy must be employed. But I find it inspiring that people are picking up plows and pruning tools in hopes that a space full of living things becomes a space in which people no longer learn to make war. One person said of this work, what's good for the environment is usually good for people. And so now there's a partnership between this pilot program that's renovating these vacant lots and people who are at risk of becoming perpetrators or victims of violence. And they're gaining job training skills, learning maintenance and landscaping as they're taking care of the lots in their neighborhoods. A new curriculum is being taught. Here's one more. 
Last year at a Louisiana high school, there were 23 students arrested for fighting in the span of three days. Kids were scared to go to school. Parents were obviously deeply concerned. So the parents came together to come up with a solution. And here's what they came up with. Some fathers were going to start walking the hallways as community leaders and liaisons on a rotation. And dads on duty, as it became called, was so successful, there wasn't a single violent incident in the months that followed that other schools across the country are now adopting the same program. Maybe we need much longer lists of ridiculous ideas. I wonder what would happen if Christians were the people you wanted in every brainstorm. Like if we said the strangest, most audacious things, if we were people who challenged every assumption, if we weren't paralyzed by cynicism, what if we sat in our meetings and family rooms and neighborhood gatherings and school committees and we said the stuff that made everybody look at you like they're not sure if you're serious? And we are, because God calls us to be deadly serious about a preposterous level of peace. And we know we're not hastening heaven by being down to earth. We start our Christian year with an absurd dream. The oracle floats to us today. And the invitation is at the end. Come, let us live in the light of the Lord. Is it too absurd that you and we would have a part to play in achieving world peace? We might decide that. Or maybe we'll decide that's the first assumption we need to interrogate. That nations, wars, and weapons have nothing to do with little old us. When in fact, somehow, a bit of the future is inside of us now. Not so that we might foretell it, but that we might forthtell peace in our context, in our spheres, at the intersection of November 27th, 2022, and eternity. Author Madeline Langle calls the liturgical year the irrational season. Welcome. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.